the I Strive Difference. Thank you and welcome to the show. So lovely to have you here. Today we'll be talking about one, bank balance sheets, two, TSX, three, rents through REITs. But wait, there's more. My name is John Paul Nyereka. I'm a CPA and I am your host for the evening. Well, hello. Thank you so much for tuning in today. The topic today is something that is near and close to my heart. This is the main reason why I started the channel to save the middle class or at least try to save the middle class or at least try to get everybody to understand that the main reason why people feel like they're struggling is not in their head and stop gaslighting the middle class as hard as they are working. Maybe it's their hustle that is lacking. Maybe it's the way that their mindset is working, that their mindset is broken and they need to just think more positive. This is a topic that I really, really wanted to do because as I understood the economic world, I started asking the main question, why is there so much credit? And it led me to, is credit money? Do you know the answer? So today we'll be looking at 60, 70 odd years of monetary supply and how that actually affects how people make decisions. We'll look through the lens of how money is actually created, how it moves through the economy, and as it moves through the economy, who benefits, when do they benefit, and what can you do about it? This is very key and critical to understanding how to thrive as a middle-class family because you can understand where all the benefits are accruing and protect yourself and protect your family accordingly. The information I'll be using today is taken from the information I'll be using today is taken from tradingeconomics.com and other sources of data that are generally respected in the industry. The focus today will be on the Canadian situation, but eventually we'll do one for the US as well. However, if you're American, you should also hang around and see how your Canadian counterparts are doing. The focus today will be Canadian. However, if you're American, hang around and see how your Canadian counterparts are doing. We will do one for the US as time comes. So the main reason why it is important to understand the supply of money is because everybody that I know that worries about money wants to have more. And it would seem that more is always coming. So the first thing to do is define what money we'll be using to look at. The first thing to do is define what money is. Money for most people will be a medium of exchange. The way we pay for things, the way we get paid for work, and the way we store value of things that we have already worked for. Now, in the world of economics, there are three different monies, M1, M2, and M3. M1 represents all the cash in circulation plus balances in checking accounts. M2 represents M1 plus some additional savings, small accounts, as well as some money market funds. M3 represents M2 plus large accounts and other larger funds. That's just generalizing. So for this experiment, we are going to take M2. M2 is not the highest amount, so it's estimating about the middle band of what the total money that is available is. And from now on, we'll try to eliminate any mention of 
M1, M2, M3, and we are not going to make this an economics lecture. What we are going to do is go through the notes calling M2 the actual money supply. So whenever I say the actual money supply, you know it's M2. Okay, so let's get started. So if I was to ask you, how much do you think the amount of money has increased in Canada? What would you say? Twice as much from 1968? Three times? Four times? Well, the answer is about 10 times. So if you had anything that is worth a dollar, it should be worth about $10 now to cover the same amount of money that it occupied in 1968. That's not a long time ago. So that is the reason why this is important. As some of you are going around looking to acquire assets, this becomes very, very important. And you can now see why everything costs so much more that it does not even make sense what exactly is happening to your economy. The first thing we'll do is compare is the population growth supporting the growth in this actual money. And as you can see in Canada, especially because of the increased focus in immigration, the population increase has been very, very steady, which means it really does support a growing economic narrative. The growing economic narrative, however, does not mean we need to keep printing money. It just means there will be more people demanding more goods and more services because we are, by and large, going up in numbers. This is not to say we are reproducing as much, but that's a conversation for another day, and we will continue with what we have going on today. COVID did change a lot in Canada. I mean, COVID did change a lot in the rest of the world. But in Canada specifically, which is our focus today, COVID put a challenge to the central bankers and the politicians to work together to create a situation where there was no chance of economic collapse. And one of the ways to do this is to ensure that citizens who are no longer now allowed to leave their houses are provided for, and this led to an increase in money supply that is historical beyond belief. In one of the charts that we're looking at, we can see that the balance sheet for the central bank increased almost five times. And this is after the historic increases that have happened since 1968. COVID alone took this up five times. Now, before you start to imagine how much money that is, let me introduce you to this concept. To increase the amount of money, the central bank can just expand its balance sheet and poof, there goes money. Did you catch that? Yes. That's how you print a trillion dollars. The central bank got into COVID with a balance sheet of about $500 billion. At the peak of COVID, the central bank had $2.5 trillion in balance sheet. So all of this is total money supply that was expanded. So as we have this conversation, we'll look at what this effect has actually done to all the things that were already keeping up with an increase in money supply or the inflation that has already been happening. But now we'll have to keep an eye out on what is this new wave of cash doing to affect what we can expect as inflation going forward. The headlines are usually dominated with US market information and the Federal Reserve conversation about printing money. 
But we have about the exact same graph when it comes to increase in actual money supply. You can go all the way back to 1950 and you will see that we are tracking exactly with them in the increase of actual money. The first thing we're going to do is look at the Canadian dollar. Where does it fit in all of this? The supply of money does not actually mean the Canadian dollar appreciates or depreciates directly depending on how much money we have out there. The Canadian dollar in itself has value in relation to other currencies. And in this case, I looked at the relationship between the Canadian dollar and the American dollar. And you can see from the observation in the chart, the Canadian dollar is seasonal according to the business cycle and it will have some peaks and it will have some troughs depending on what exactly is happening. A part of that depends on the fact that Canada has a reliance on natural resources that are in themselves cyclic in nature. Cyclic means they go up and they go down depending on the business cycle. The business cycle is what has come to be known as the boom and bust that comes with high activity levels and low activity levels that at times take over the economy. And that is the reason why we have recessions and then we have euphoric moments. So the conclusion here we can see that the Canadian dollar does not reflect or capture the value of the increased real money supply. So it is not a good hedge against increased money supply because as you can see, the money supply keeps going up. The Canadian dollar does not react in the same fashion as the money supply. The second thing to look at is inflation rate. The inflation rate, much like the Canadian dollar, is seasonal. At least the inflation rate, the way they measure it with CPI, is seasonal. You can see there are some peaks and there are some valleys with the increase in actual money supply. And that is the reason why every single striver should know that just because inflation is reported to be 9.1% does not mean it is 9.1%. Do not buy the co common narrative that you understand exactly what things are going to be worth next year because somebody said interest rates will go up and uh, things will cool down and all of these things do not account for the fact that the increase in availability of money has steadily been on the, in, on the upswing for the past 50-60 years and it will still be on the upswing because that is the law of the land. On a side note, one of the reasons why it keeps going up is because there are two people that can make money, the government and the central bank. The government is full of politicians who like popular support and there's nothing that brings popular support along better than spending and spending creates more pressure to create more money and whenever recessions come around central banks know no other tool better than reducing interest rates and increasing money supply so you can see that there's no incentive in the system to reduce the amount of money that is available and there has not been in any of this 70-year block a time where actual money supply has dec decreased in a significant way Anyway, I digress, so let's keep on going. Okay, so one of the things that people ask is, so if the money is going up, shouldn't the money, should, shouldn't the money just cost less? 
And you're right. Money costs less. Money costs significantly less. The 10-year bond used to cost over 10%. And you've heard this story from every boomer you know when they say they used to pay 15% mortgages. And they're not lying. That was the truth. But nowadays, the mortgage just hit five and everybody says there's going to be a meltdown. And this drop in the 10-year bond is partially responsible for setting mortgage rates. But it's not the only thing that is dropping. The borrowing rate from bank to bank has also decreased to about a 1% or 2%. And this is part of what sets prime uh, in the market. And the prime rate itself is very, very low now. Just about four, four and a half or five. And this has not always been the case, but you can see as money increases, it gets cheaper and cheaper. One of the reasons why it gets cheaper and cheaper is because there are two ways that somebody can get interest for having money. And that is to lend it to somebody who is producing something and get interest or to lend it to the government and get interest. Whenever there is an excess of money, all of this money is competing for the same general reward, which is the interest from all the people doing stuff. All the people doing stuff do not need all that money. And even if they do, if they know there is so much available, they will not pay so much as interest. So you can start to see how this affects savers in the economy. Savings rates have dropped significantly over this period of time to above 5%. This has not always been the case. A few people argue that the Canadian society has always been a high-spending and low-saving society, and that is not the case. You can see all the way up to 1980s, the savings rates were increasing up to about 20%, which matches about twice how high the bond rate was. So if you are saving 20% and getting 10% on your money, you are ending up pretty well off and in a significant manner to keep it top of mind whenever you're working. However, somewhere in between the middle of the 80s, this started to drop. So people started to save less. And what you can see as we get to 1990s is the rise of consumerism. The rise of consumerism is accompanied by the great household credit boom. It's like the rolling 90s. When you look at it from the graph point of view, one of the things that has kept up with the rise in the actual amount of money is the household credit and household debt borrowing. It is actually running ahead of the amount of money available, which is itself is impressive because, as you know, the amount of money available went up 10x. The consumer debt went up even faster than that. Uh, household income to debt, way, way faster than money, money supply. And something else that ended up happening was that people started saving less, consuming more, which means they had to work. They had to work. And you can see that employment keeps increasing and unemployment levels falling to a point where we are at record unemployment right now. And I know what you're thinking. 
didn't the youth all quit and go home? That is also more of a myth and more of a folklore story than an actual truth. The youth are working at a historic level. There's never been a time where there's more youth working in unemployment rate than now. The youth have the lowest unemployment rate in the history of Canada. So stop blaming millennials for being quitters. They are working. They just cannot get ahead. And there are very, very good reasons why they cannot get ahead. And before we get into those, I also want to point out that the participation rate is reducing, which means there are quite a few people that are leaving the market and never uh, trying to get a job again. And that's how you drop out of the participation rate. If you're interested in hearing more, send me a comment and I will look at it into it for you. So it, I know what you're asking. The natural next question, if all this money has been put out there and we are still working, are we, are we, are we getting a pay cut? Because, I mean, we, we are working, but are we getting the raises that fast? And one thing I can tell you is that the hourly rate has actually kept up with the rise of money. So how much you actually get paid per hour in the whole economy, not you by yourself, you, your CFO, your CEO, and the president of the company, everybody combined, that rate has actually kept up with the increase in money. And a few people will be surprised by that because there's a feeling that the middle class is getting squeezed. So if the, if the rate has kept up, how can we even say they're getting squeezed? Well, it is very nuanced. But the next thing to look at is weekly earnings. So earnings have stagnated even though wages, especially hourly wages, have increased. Which means we are all in general making more per hour, taking less home. However much money you're working for, as soon as that money is earned, what's deducted from it, the part that does not make your pocket is larger and larger. You get where I'm going with this? Yes. So everything before you get your money, all the deductions, all those have gone up. And I will show you why. And the other reason why you're feeling squeezed is because the prices of goods and services have gone up significantly. And this tend to be priced in waves. So if you think about it as, let's say it's a plank, you, you see that every several years it gets raised for a steady amount for like a 10-year period. So for example, in the 80s, the cost of goods and services increased up to about 91, and that was very steady for another 10, 11 years. And in 2001, 2002, it started going up again, only to stabilize around 2010, 2015. And it's been stable ever since until now. So that big amount of money that you saw getting created by the central bank is going to push the level of pricing for goods and services back in an upward direction so that it can stabilize, let's say, next year or the year after that into a period of steady prices for about seven or eight years. That's just how it works. You increase the money, the goods and services go higher. And that is one of the reasons, might I say, 
that I do not believe that any of the assets that are worth having, whether it's the real estate market or the stock market, will have a crash of meaningful levels. Or even if they do, that they will have any sustainable time in that crash position because the increase of money has just been so tremendous that they have to eventually reprice to the new money that just got printed last year. And that process is not finished. That process just began, which scares me into thinking we might be looking at a case where inflation takes on another gear into assets. Same feeling that we got during COVID when assets were inflating at a very high level. I think that is going to come back and take on another gear because of all this money that is still in the system. No matter what the central bank says, I find it very hard to believe that they'll be able to take out the $2 trillion they put on their balance sheet in a span of six months. Raising and uh, curtailing interest rates will not reduce their balance sheet fast enough. And if they keep any part of that balance sheet, it will mean at least doubling the, the money supply that has been created through that balance sheet. And if you double that balance sheet and you keep it at double, right now it's a five times or six times. If you keep it at double what it was in 2019, you still need those assets to be double. So if there was a house in Toronto that was 400,000 and right now it's appreciated to 550 and it's been dropping to 475, it's going to have to get to 800 for the new normal to happen. Okay, I hope I did not spook you at all. Let's keep moving. All right. So if everything has gone up, why is it that inflation has just become a problem this year? If everything has been going up, what is inflation? In this case, I'm proposing that inflation is how much money is out there in the economy buying goods and services. Assuming all the goods and services form a pie, how much money goes to one slice of pie? If you're expanding the amount of money that is available, the slice of pie gets more expensive. And that's just how it goes. However, not just that slice of pie gets expensive. There are some things that track the increase of money more closely. And that's what people feel in the middle class. That's what households feel. One of these examples is food and shelter. The shelter CPI has been going up at the same level or even faster level as the amount of actual money in the system since the 1970s. So you can tell that the amount of food that we need to buy for the amount of money that is available, food is catching those price increases, whether or not we say there is an inflation problem. Whether or not we call it a CPI of 2%, which they say has been for the past, I don't know how long, food has been increasing about the same speed as the actual money supply, which is much higher than the 2% that they purport. Now, it's not just food. Gasoline. Gasoline has been cyclic because at times it peaks and several other times it falls. So around the, there was a significant rise up until we got to the Iraq war and that dropped prices. But prices have now shot 
completely up. I don't need to tell you this. I'm sure you are aware. Thank God for the past two, two months, we've seen a little bit of a reprieve. But these prices will keep going up as long as the money supply keeps getting expanded. It's pretty simple, really. You cannot expand the commodity and you expand the money constantly. Eventually, the commodity is going to cost more for the money. Now, the one thing that is very crucial for Canadians and households use this for wealth, use this for shelter, use this for the general Canadian dream is the home. The price to rent ratio has also tracked the increase in actual money almost to the T, which means rent has been going up, 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 regardless because somehow it is sensitive to the supply of money. And these are the things we have to watch for whenever we're trying to invest to keep up with inflation. What are the things that are keeping up with inflation? Rent is one of them. Later on, we'll see, is it possible to invest in rents? The answer to that is yes, but we're not going to talk about it now. Hang around, we'll talk about it about the end. And another thing that we need to talk about is taxation. When the wage rate is going up, but the take-home is going down, in the middle there, there's taxation. Is taxation one of the reasons why the take-home is lower? The answer is yes. And you can see from all the graphs that we have that personal taxation has gone up about 4%. 4% on personal taxes. Later on, when we start talking about corporations, we will revisit this conversation. But for now, just know that personal taxes have gone up about 4% in this period. And that is squeezing the middle class even more. Because now, whatever you are working for, even though you got a raise, you are taking even less home. So this inflated money that you're getting paid, fewer and fewer percentage of that is making it into your pocket. And as it makes it into your pocket, gasoline, food, shelter, and other goods and services are also getting squeezed up. So that is the feeling that you get that there is something not working in the economy. The other part we need to talk about is, okay, so if we are getting taxed this much, isn't the government doing something to stop prices going up? Maybe. If they are, I am not aware of it. What I am aware of is the increased government spending that you see. Now, increased government spending does not reduce inflation. Increased government spending increases inflation because it brings on demand and it brings on programs that are permanent. Every time a government sets up a temporary program, you can count on it being very permanent. One of the temporary programs we have is income tax. Income tax was supposed to be a temporary program for a war effort. And I don't know what war we are fighting now, but I can tell you somebody who just paid 43% wants peace right now. Peace. Okay. Government spending has been increasing significantly in the past 70 years. However, one of the things that has been even more remarkable is that it has, using deficit spending, it has almost exactly kept up with the rate of increase in money. This is a, a huge surprise because 
you get the sense that if the government had more money, it will do more things better and it will end up needing less money. Now, no government has ever returned money to its citizens other than some political chicanery. don't know if chicanery is a word, but we'll, we'll just roll with it. Most of the times where some government returns the money, it's because somebody's trying to buy some votes. What you can see from the spending is that the spending increases steadily over the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And the only change is that at some point, we ease up about 95 or so, we ease up on the deficit spending and it goes steady with excess government spending or increasing, steadily increasing government spending, but a higher level of revenues. So instead of spending on the deficit, we are spending revenues coming in from taxes. However, we abandoned all of that some, <laughs> somewhere around 2019 and we just shoot up. So the government is back spending on deficits as if uh, there's no tomorrow. And 2020 with the, with the COVID situation, that did not help either. So, so what we can conclude is the government also has a debt issue and a spending issue that is tracking to the amount of money that is available. So what came first, the chicken or the egg? What came first, the available money, the ability for the government to give itself money or the spending habit? But one thing I know for sure is that the spending habits of the people and the spending habits of the government and the availability of money has created a situation where savings is nearly impossible and even when possible, it is not rewarded. For corporations, it's a little bit of a different story. Let's talk about it. The first thing we need to talk about is remember that conversation we had about the take-home being reduced even though we're making more money because the tax rate went up about an average of 4%. Well, that's different for corporations. The corporate tax rate, the corporate tax rate fell in 1984 from 50% to about 28%. So while we started out happy to be humans and paying human level taxes in the 80s, right now you'd be happy to be a corporation and you would really enjoy a lower tax rate. So if you are able to convert yourself, transform yourself into a corporation, please do it because that way you will start getting a better take home. Another thing corporations have shown in the past period is the fact that corporate profits have been able to keep up with the rate of increase in money, even though there are some dips and there are some places where you see uh, some volatility. They rise about the same exact arc. So this tells me that no matter how much money is being printed, corporate profits have been able to capture a significant chunk of that without losing steam or without falling behind, without falling behind the level of actual money that is available in supply. So as we think about investing and protecting what we work for, we have to think about how do we invest in these corporate profits? Because if you are able to make sure that your money tracks and maintains its value as money is getting expanded by both the central bank and the government, 
then you are able to do something for yourself and your family, like save for retirement or preserve your hard-earned work through the money you put to work. Even though the real money supply is getting increased significantly, the corporation's profits are able to keep up, but at the same time, they're also paying labor an increasing amount of money, which means all the workers are getting, I'm not going to say their fair share, but they are getting a share that is not diminishing as money is getting printed. This tells me two things. This tells me as people are getting paid, they have the opportunity to take that money and hedge themselves against inflation. And that is where I see the greatest opportunity for the middle class to not get swept under this wave of money that is getting printed. You need to make sure that as you are getting paid, you are protecting yourself into things that have shown an ability to resist getting washed away by this wave of money. And so far, we've seen two things, corporate profits and rent. Corporate profits and rent are the two things that we've seen that have resisted being swept away by this level of money. You can also say government spending, things like tuition and healthcare. This might be more difficult to invest in. Before we go any further, let's talk about has this increase of money supply actually made the economy better? It's not, it's not evident that it has made the economy better because the output has stagnated for the past, because the output has stagnated for the past 60 years. It's not growing any faster because we are giving it more money. It has peaked. Now what we are doing is just repricing the same thing. Even when a new thing comes, an old thing dies. So we are not really buying new things. We are buying the same thing or a better version of the same thing priced at a higher level because there's so much money in the system. You get the effect. The effect is, is it's not that it's making it better. It's making it more expensive in nominal terms. Now, before my real estate people start uh, heckling me and saying, hey, we all know how to hedge against inflation. Why are we even talking about this? Buy real estate, hold, and everything is going to be okay. Now, that is not correct. Rent is a better investment than real estate. Now, let me explain. Rent has kept up with the rate of increase in money. However, for real estate... The year-over-year rises and falls have generally tracked business cycles, a bit longer business cycles. They don't go up and down as easily, but when they do, they do so significantly. In the past 70 years, we've seen several times where the price for real estate has actually gone down significantly, even as rents are going up. We are in one of those cases right now where the rents are still going up at some, in some cases, in some cities, even peaking, looking at Toronto, even peaking while the prices of real estate is generally steady or going down. So those are two different investments. Rents and real estate are not the same. When you're trying to hedge for inflation and making sure you're protecting your family, do not confuse the two. If you're able to invest in rents, that is a much better investment than investing in real estate. But one of the reasons why real estate ends up struggling is because of the delayed supply shocks. 
Every single time you see a huge boom in real estate, it's followed by a huge boom in construction. And that supply is always lagging because when you're putting up a house to go through approvals and to go through all the municipal stuff that needs to be done, that takes a lead time that by the time the, the actual supply matures into the market, the demand has either passed or we're in a different side of the business cycle. And then the construction uh, companies have to eat all that loss. And when they do, they crash the markets in price. And this trickles down to all the resellers. And usually that is the business cycle is associated with a recession and some foreclosures and everything cascades down. And that is why, unlike rent, real estate is a terrible hedge for inflation. Okay. Now, one more asset to look at that has really kept up with the rate of inflation and maybe actually gone a little bit faster than the rate of inflation is the bank's balance sheets. And I know you're like, okay, I get it. The banks, yes, the banks have two advantages in this situation. Whenever money is created, the task of delivering this money to the market falls to the banks. And you can think about it this way, that even though the money is cheap, even though the money could be 0% money, the bank is always going to take in deposits and pay them much less than they are receiving on interest on loans. So the banks will always do better regardless of what the level of interest is. And from what we can see, at least in Canada where the big five banks are easy to gauge, we can see that the bank's balance sheets have gone up significantly over this period of time and at time outpacing even the aggressive increase in monetary supply. So as we are learning what exactly we can invest in, we are looking at rents, we are looking at corporate profits, and we are looking at bank balance sheets. Now that we know the three things that have held their own against this rising tide of money, the next natural step is how do we protect our money? Should we buy all of them? How do we buy them? And where do we buy them? So the first thing, corporate profits. Where do you buy corporate profits? Now, I, it doesn't take a genius to say you have to choose which corporation and which profit. And some other genius might say, what about we buy all the corporations and get all the profits? So the one place you can find them is the TSX. Uh, we looked at the chart of the TSX against the chart of the rising real money. And you can see that the TSX has for sure, without a doubt, held up against the rising tide of money. So the TSX is a good place to invest if you buy the whole market. I have not seen a product that allows you to buy the whole market. So I will leave that to you to do your research. But if you get the whole TSX market, you will have what we have historically seen as a more resilient asset against rising inflation. One thing I have to absolutely put a pin on is how bad bonds have performed. Bonds have performed at the same rate as the interest rates have performed, which means right now, bonds are not the hedge that they were supposed to be. Whenever interest rate went down, bonds were supposed to go up. Right now, interest rates are 
just coming off the bottom and bonds are still at the bottom of the totem pole as far as return is concerned. So I would not recommend bonds to anyone. And a lot of people who go through typical financial planning cycles end up buying bonds and they don't even know it. This is a show, this is a different show that we're going to do. But people who hold bonds and people who pay fees are giving money out to the market for no return and are not hedged against inflation. And this is something that is correctable. If you decide to work with me, I can help you work through that. Okay, second thing, rents. How do you buy rents? The two ways to buy rents are you become a landlord or you buy REITs. Now, becoming a landlord is not for everybody. The math on that is not exactly uh, black and white. You can be a landlord and still lose money. So we'll focus on REITs. REITs are real estate investment trusts. These are a special category of company that works to get rents and then distributes the rents and the profit back to unit holders for them to pay taxes on their own as if they collect the rents themselves. Lastly, bank balance sheets. How do you invest in bank balance sheets? Well, we have bank ETFs that capture the majority of the big five and then you get the access to the majority of these balance sheets. Now to the main event. We have assessed the rising level of money supply and we are at a point where we know the three things that we want in the market. We want REITs, we want banks, and we want the TSX. We did a study on the best performing of these three assets. You can see over the long haul that banks performed much better than the other two in Canada. And I have to stress in Canada because the effect in Canada for the major banks are outsized compared to somewhere like the United States. And second, in the short term, the stock market performs a little bit better than the rents. And I can tell you, part, part of this is because the rents have to go through a management. Now, those costs cannot be recovered. And every single time you pay fees as management fee to manage the buildings that are giving you rent, you end up losing some of your returns. And I believe this is the reason why the rents are not beating the market. The main conclusion I have is that I will put them in this order. One, bank balance sheets. Two, TSX. Three, rents through REITs. But wait, there's more. Before you run out and go and buy all of these things that we talked about, we need to talk about the first level of defense against this rising tide of money, wiping out all your value. The first level of defense is you. You are the main reason why you will be successful. And the first part is protecting yourself against what is called the wealth effect. This rising tide of money makes everybody want to ball. It's just natural. So stop the balling. Second, get a budget. A budget that tells your money where to go. So after you're done with everything else that they deduct before you touch the money, you've got to take the money and pay your future self. And third, minimize your taxation. And this is something we can help you with, as well as the budget. If you do not have to pay taxes now, pay them later. And this 
does not mean if you have tax outstanding, you should not pay your bill. If it's your bill, it's your bill, it's due. But tax planning involves taking advantage of different cases where the, the government has allowed you to defer your taxes. And if the government has allowed you to defer your taxes and you qualify, this program, the programs are very generous with advantages. So we will take you through that. The last two can be controversial. First, home ownership. As we have discussed, rents track inflation and the supply of money very well. So if you're paying rent, you will inevitably be paying somebody else's hedge against inflation. So don't do that. And lastly, this might be controversial, marriage and a college degree. This too have shown to have a huge impact to the level of status and wealth that is achieved. I didn't cause it, don't come for me, but type in a comment if that if you agree with that. Marriage and the college degree will make the difference. Okay, if you find information like this useful, please share, subscribe, put your comments below, and I will respond to every single one of you. Thank you and have a good day.